I speak to you in the name of the living God, who is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Bishop, people of Christ Church, Amber, Missy, friends and colleagues, I'm so glad and honored to be here with you tonight to celebrate this new chapter of ministry and life together. I know Amber has already been hard at work with you since she landed because when she invited me to preach tonight, I figure she must have thought you'd know her well enough by now that I wouldn't have any chance of convincing y'all to send her and Missy back to Memphis where we miss them very much. I trust that you are excited to have Amber here and I know that she's very, very glad to be with you. New York is a very different place from the sultry and languid summers of Arkansas and Memphis. And I feel qualified to judge as such since though I was born in Virginia and lived much of my life in the Deep South, I have also spent good time in Poughkeepsie and Hartford and Boston. I like to think I've carried the best of both worlds. There's a direct and to-the-point style of communication that so many practice up here that is refreshing. <laughs> In the South, it is not always like that. If I, was being if I was being gentle, I would say that it's because Southerners are natural storytellers and they just don't want to deprive you of the enjoyment of the narrative by just coming right out and saying whatever it is they want to say. If I was being a little more critical, I might say something about conflict avoidance. But I'm Southern, so I wouldn't. <laughs> My personal theory is that it has to do with the preeminent seasons. Passing by someone during winter up here, you need to say what you need to say before your mouth freezes shut. <laughs> and in the summer down there, the heat slows things down, except the temper. So people feel the need to dance around difficult topics sometimes, for better and for worse. Amber's a direct communicator, too. I remember one time during seminary at a favorite dive that we affectionately called Sketchy Bar. Amber met us there on our way out while a trivia game was going on, though I, I'm not sure that she knew it. The game host asked the next question for the general populace. What was the first music video on MTV? And without pause, she shouts, I know that one! Video killed the radio star! as everyone groaned and the room erupted in shouts and we ran out of there, though I was certain that there was someone in that room that needed help with the answer. She's always looking out for others. The man in our parable today could have used a pastor in his life who wasn't shy to be direct with him. Someone who could have encouraged him to reflect on his values, his priorities, his worldview. Someone who could have warned him that he was building a house or barns as it were, on sand, expending his resources and the gift of his life on things that would seem to set him up well, only to slip away as that deadline that none of us can control came up for him sooner than he imagined. This passage occurs in a chapter where Luke describes many teachings Jesus is sharing with his disciples and followers, exhortations to be honest and not hypocritical, for things will come to light. Exhortations to persevere in faith, even amidst persecution, of keeping awake and watching for the Lord, of not expending all our energy being anxious about our belonging or needs, for we are beloved of God. And knowing and trusting that 
will set all those other things into place, even struggle, even need, even death. A man comes to Jesus and asks him to intervene in his inheritance struggle, and amusingly, given the creeds that we pray each week, Jesus declaims his place as a judge in this matter and warns against the breach of relationship in the pursuit of all kinds of greed. Reflecting on this parable for this week, it made me really think of a game. The man has too many crops and not enough storage. Amber and our circle of friends loves games, and whether that's using a 20-sided dice to imagine being wizards and warriors or strategizing how to win an overly complicated and overlong board game, the playing and the solving give a lot of enjoyment. And I don't know if you, most of you have likely played Monopoly, maybe you've played a very popular board game now called Settlers of Catan, perhaps some of the Sim games like SimCity on the computer, Farmville. There are many variations on this theme of games about resource management, of figuring out how to use the rules and the context to ensure that you gather more and more resources as you build your town or your settlement and grow, and maybe even win the game. Of course, this is usually in opposition to other players or the computer trying to do the same thing. And like uh, the Highlander movies, there can be only one. Now this, of course, makes sense in a game, but I wonder if it also offers too easy a look into the acquisitive worldview that many of us assume, I think unconsciously, much of the time. Get what you can while you can. He who dies with the most barns wins. The passage notes that the man's land is abundant, but doesn't mention the assumed workers who help cultivate and harvest all of that such that he has more, much more than he immediately needs. Now, there's no mention on whether he is a fair or a generous landowner, but it probably wasn't too different from our own day when billionaires can launch themselves to the edge of space in a country where people still go to bed hungry or without a roof over their heads. And it's not just that the many, many similar teachings and passages from Scripture make a strong case that God's dream for the world, for the human family, is very different from the extractive and self-focused perspectives that order much of our world. It's that this man's soul was in danger, imagining that ample resources for eating, drinking, and being merry, none of which are bad things, as all Episcopalians can attest, but they're not the sole focus of life and work instead of a relationship with God, with others around them, and even with himself as demonstrated by his clear lack of understanding of what a soul needs. He's missed the point of it all, and his time is up before he has a chance to learn or hear the good news that his soul is called to higher purpose. Today, Friends at Christ Church, we recognize formally the next chapter of the good work of sharing the good news in this place with your calling, Amber, as your rector, as priest, pastor, and teacher, and with her and Missy joining your community of disciples. You've called someone who will be direct with you when needed for the good of the soul, but whom you can trust is motivated by genuine love and grounded in her prayer for you and your community. You've called someone who loves to play who will remind you that we are made for more than achievement or acquisition or even security, but simply because it pleased God and made the Lord happy. 
you'll remind each other of and share with the larger community that good news that they are already beloved by God in Christ, that his work, his life, death, resurrection has opened up for all of us and all who desired a firmer foundation, life beyond life, wholeness and hope beyond what any of us can do for ourselves, even those with more crops than we need and many, many barns. I'm so happy for you, for the joys and even the challenges that you will share together in holy remembering. Whatever the days to come bring, I trust that God will do what God does. He'll call forth holiness and life and salvation through the ordinary things and the ordinary days and the ordinary people of life together. So please take care of each other. Keep each other oriented towards the gospel. Enjoy the call to be together just for the play of it. I think that's something that's sorely needed after these past several months. And when needed, I think keep up with that direct communication style, grounded in compassion. Just make sure that Amber knows if it's a trivia game before asking her a question. <laughs> Amen.